0: So in the Reading Corner today, I'm delighted to be welcoming Naomi Wormsley, who apparently has just finished a coast-to-coast walk, and yet she looks very bright and sprightly this morning as she joins me uh, to talk about books. And in particular today, we're going to be talking about her book, Live Like a Hunter Gatherer. Uh, I want to start, Naomi, by talking about some of your qualifications to write about this book, because you have had, I think it's true to say, An extraordinary existence um, and some great explorations. Um, So perhaps we could start there, get a sense of why this book was important to you.
1: Yes, that's quite a big question really, why this book was important to me. So I, I think I have to kind of go back a few years really. Um so I started my career as a, a, a waitress and uh, worked in a lot of bars and things like that and tended tables. And people used to tell me to smile when I was wiping tables. And I thought, right, that's it. I need to get a job that, you know, makes me smile rather than a job that pays me to smile. Um, I stumbled upon things like forest school and then bushcraft. And so I did some training in that sort of side of things. And then it kind of came to me that um, I was teaching using other people's experiences and other people's knowledge. And what I really wanted to do was to teach with my own experiences as my own knowledge. So I was able to say, this is how I lit my fire when I was cold. This is um, how I built my shelter when it was raining, that sort of thing. So in 2010, we found a course in um, America. Uh, a wonderful woman called Lynx, who taught me um, many, many skills. So we went out to America and lived for four months in tents, kind of like an epic camping excursion. Uh, there were 17 of us originally. We all lived in tents in a forest, learning all primitive skills. So we learned everything from how to make our own leather clothes, how to make our own, well, how to make our own leather to, to, to start. Uh, how to hunt, how to forage, um, how to make clay pots from the earth, how to make fire, how to uh, make stone and bone tools, pretty much everything we needed to be a modern stone age person. We planned to live in the wild for a month. Uh, We actually ended up doing 17 days because of various things such as forest fires, Um, snow and injuries. So we actually managed 17 days. And sometimes I say only 17 days, and actually that doesn't do it justice because 17 days living in the wild with no modern equipment whatsoever um, is a big deal. And then we came back from that and set up our business um, where we teach Stone Age education to children. Um, And then 2019, we were contacted by our very same teacher, Lynx Vilden, who was making or being part of a TV show, uh, where she was asked to live like a Stone Age tribe in Bulgaria for a month, and she asked my husband and I to be involved. So off we went to Bulgaria to live like a Stone Age tribe again. Again, no modern equipment, and we lived like that for a whole month. And it was actually during that experience uh, I remember being stood around a fire, talking to my tribe of eight. I think we were. And I said, I want to write a children's book that includes real life experiences of living out in the wild and also includes real facts and activities. So, you know, I want to talk about the things that we did, but I want to show people how we did it so that they can reenact it at home in their gardens or in the forest or whatever. So I suppose that's kind of how the book was born and why I have such a great passion of it because it's where we come from. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that children, a lot of children's education starts with dinosaurs. You know, my, my child is in, in nursery. Uh, no, she's not. She's in reception. Um, and she's learning about dinosaurs. And I just want them to start at the beginning, you know, like of us, mm-hmm. of of how we started, because obviously without without that there is no us now
0: really fascinating um one thing that um i have to ask you when you first arrived in america uh to this camp was it no modern equipment right from the beginning or was it a gradual <laughs> induction into living like that
1: Uh, Yes. So it was a more gradual induction. Uh, We lived in bell tents with uh, sleeping bags and, you know, an air mattress or whatever. But during that four month preparation period, our teacher got us to help her build a lodge in another part of the woodland. And we tried to do that as much as we could with Mm -hmm. um, traditional tools, you know, with um, flint tools and just with our hands. And that area was to be, completely primitive so we weren't allowed to go there and finish a craft project with our metal needle if we wanted to finish a craft project we were to do that with our bone needle um and if we wanted to cook then we had to cook on hot rocks there we still then could go back to our tent and go actually this bit's a bit tricky for a newbie like me i want to use you know a knife or whatever um and then two weeks prior to going out uh, that's when we became uh, paleo Um, Eaters. So we had to cut out all sugar, all dairy, all the good stuff basically to allow our bodies to transition easily.
0: What about medicine?
1: Medicine's interesting um, because obviously all modern medicine comes from nature. Uh, We've just developed it to be a little bit probably faster releasing. So when we were out, I experienced toothache and there were certain roots of plants that I chewed that made me better. Uh, We had stomach aches where we would make yarrow tea, obviously our usual stings and bites and rashes and things like that. And we used plantain. There were no major um, happenings, which meant that we needed a a fuller first aid kit.
0: Interesting. And so we come to this absolutely fascinating book, Uh, Live Like a Hunter Gatherer, Uh, Discovering the Secrets of the Stone Age. Uh, And I was totally enthralled and captivated uh, by the book right from the beginning, really, where you give us some background into Stone Age peoples. And I hadn't appreciated how long Stone Age people have been on the earth for. It's quite phenomenal. So maybe tell us a little bit about some of the background. I mean, we go into schools quite a lot
1: and deliver this um, timeline so that the children can see it in front of them. And they get a real shock, I suppose, when they recognise that the Stone Age started three and a half million years ago-ish. Nobody really knows. But I think what they don't realise is that within the Paleolithic times alone, that spanned a million years. That's longer than we can comprehend, really, that we were being humans. I mean, we we were obviously developing and we were changing and there was different species within that time. But that's human evolution within the paleolithic is the longest time that we've known but it's really lovely to kind of look into those different time zones the paleolithic the mesolithic the neolithic and understand what changes happened within that time as well and how different we were within each one of those periods based on the tools that we were using based on our diet um, and based on our environment as well
0: one of the things i'd like to know is i suppose how we know and what we can be sure of in your book, and what perhaps we are drawing conclusions. So clearly, there's archaeological evidence for some things. But when you talk about language and what language might have been like, you know, the stereotype of the caveman going, ugh, all the time, and you talk about language perhaps being more a sequence of clicks and other kinds of sounds, what sort of evidence do we have for that?
1: That's really interesting and actually something I don't know where the evidence comes from. It's information that was given to me. Fortunately, I was very um, lucky to be able to fact check with um, Teresa, who was also on the Stone Age programme with me in Bulgaria. And her whole um, career is basically understanding and teaching prehistory. So it was something that she was able to tell me and I... I have to be honest and say I don't know where that information comes from and I wonder if it's from measurements from jaws you know from bones that people have found other than that I'm really sorry it would be a really I'd mm-hmm. love to be able to answer a bit more in full about that because it's fascinating but I'm not sure what the
0: you know the root of the evidence for that is but we do have evidence for other things because there are artifacts uh, being left to be uncovered so I suppose things like tools and even housing i suppose we get, can get some sense of what that might have been like
1: yeah absolutely i mean we've got the scarabray to be able to look at and see how people lived um and see the houses that were built um and there's traces of pottery as well that they can find and date back obviously bones of human remains and there's also bones of tools um so yes yeah, so they're able to date back a lot of things like that fascinating
0: yeah. do we know anything about gender roles in this time the reason I'm asking you (laughs) I have mentioned it before on a podcast but I have behind me a book uh, a history book that I had when I was at school and it says in this history book that stone age man went out and hunted and the wife stayed behind and scraped the furs to make the clothes now I'm not sure that that's the case but do we have any evidence at all about gender roles?
1: (laughs) Again, another great question. I don't know if we do have evidence about gender roles. I mean, when I have lived out in the wild, we certainly evenly distributed the roles. Um, It was based on strength. It was based on energy. And maybe in time, you know, women did stay at home because they were having children, you know, the safety level of a pregnant woman to go out hunting. And then that's where the, the the roles were divided and hunting still needed to happen. So maybe the men that's when the men would go hunting and the women would stay at home and do the less um, energetic tasks. Interesting. Let's
0: come on to some of the skills that you're going to teach us in the book. I can't wait to go and try some of these out. I have tried fire with very little success, actually. So tell us a bit about fire would have been so important, wouldn't it?
1: Yeah, fire meant everything. So when they discovered how to make fire, it would have made a massive difference even to their diet because it meant that they could cook meat. It meant that they could cook away bacteria so they were probably healthier. It meant that they were spending less time chewing. Their jaw could develop in a different way. Their brain was getting different fats and it meant that they could then potentially um, have more opportunities to develop language. Um, And so for me, for fire to be able to impact that is massive. Um, and then they would have been able to extend their day. So they would have been able to fix and mend and, um, they would have been able to have more rituals and celebrations and obviously safety, um, as well. And water again, making that safer to drink. So they probably would have been healthier people, but Fire for me in the modern world has changed, um, especially in a kind of a bushcraft sense um, and a survival sense. People think they need to create fire on their own. They need to. uh, There's a lot of ego surrounding fire. Look, I've just made this with my bare hands on my own. when we lived out in the wild, we made fire as a community. We made fire as a tribe. It was let's get a fire built and then we'd get the hand drill out and, you know, I would rub it and then somebody else would rub it and somebody else would rub it. So I do think that fire is really important to think of as kind of like a a, a community effort. And I just think fire is fascinating because there's so many ways that you can make that spark, that you can mm.
0: harness that heat. So what was more successful? The fire drill is where you rub a stick, is it?
1: Yeah, so you've got bow drill where you have um, essentially a bow that is what is making your spindle go round and round and round. And then your hand drill is where you've only got your hands bearing down on a drill piece into the wood. They're essentially the same method. They're both friction, um, but one has the bow and one just uses your hands. Then you can strike
0: stones together together.
1: You can strike stones together. You've got potential of marcosite or iron pyrites with flint, and that makes a spark. Then you've got to catch that spark. So then you've got to potentially have some dried tinder fungus or um, some uh, dried leaves. It would be very difficult. So you've then got to get your spark onto that mushroom or whatever you've chosen to use, and then you've got to transport that into your dried tinder bundle. So it's quite a, um, an, a process, really. Well, you've got to you've got to really look after this ember
0: so how on earth do people keep that ember alive? So you
1: can wrap it into a bundle so when we were um, living in America, we had our fire um, all the way through the evening and then into the next morning and I remember looking up into the sky and thinking it is going to rain today. We need to treat this fire like treasure now so we took one of the bigger embers from the fire. And we placed it into a bundle of dried leaves with our tinder fungus next to it. So the tinder fungus is basically your coal extender. That's what's gonna keep your ember burning longer. Um, And then we wrapped that tightly into bark and plugged up the sides, but with the tiny, tiny bit of oxygen being allowed in so that the ember could stay alight. Um, And then we basically carried that with us. We put some rawhide string on it kind of carried it wafting it every now and again um, and then when we got to our new site we opened that up hours and hours later and there our ember still was so then you can blow it into flames and then you go and get your your stick so it was really really important to be able to transport your fire
0: did you find uh, that your senses and your use of your senses changed during this experience yes i did um you only really notice
1: it when you come out and you realize you have mass sensory overload and that generally speaking in the modern world all your senses are firing at all times especially when you're in a city and you recognize that when you're living a more natural existence you can concentrate on one of your senses at one time um so yeah i found we we could you know smell a burnt forest from a very 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 long way away we were getting s- definitely more stinky, but like not as an unpleasant thing, just as a more natural odor. The animals were slightly less afraid of us as we kind of went on. And we were wondering if that's because um, we were smelling a little bit more wild um, because we were wearing all deer clothing as well. And yes, our tastes definitely, which is why we gave up sugar and all of that sort of stuff beforehand um, to help us transition. Strangely, the meals that we ate out in the wilderness um, immersion are not meals that I would have at home or enjoy necessarily, and yet they were the most delicious, you know, uh, nourishing uh, bowls of food that I've probably ever had. And we had pretty much the same bowl of food every night.
0: (laughs) But it was delicious. Of all the skills that you learnt, what challenged you the most?
1: Probably community living, actually. You know, you think it's going to be fire lighting or flint napping or something like that, the harder skills, but it's probably more likely to be the softer skills. Uh, We're not used to living fully in communities. Some people may be obviously listening to this, but generally speaking, we live in our houses, we tuck ourselves away um, and we spend time with people when we want to. And when we were living out in the wild, we had to communicate daily with the people around us. Otherwise, we wouldn't operate in a positive sense you know we had to cook together we had to hunt together we had to divide roles uh we had to walk together and for that to happen there needed to be harmony and there needed to be communi- communication and we've all come from different you know walks of life so we all do that in a different way so that definitely for me and my husband uh was one of the uh one of the most challenging lessons definitely
0: mm mm-hmm you've talked about making your own clothes what did you have on your feet often
1: nothing often bare feet you know they're fully waterproof and the more you walk outside the harder that they get also we made leather moccasins but if you wear those when it's raining then they take ages to dry and your feet get colder I also made rawhide sandals So that's basically just dried animal skin which is an absolute nightmare when it rains because you've just got fleshy floppy skin at the bottom of your feet as you walk Uh, but for protection um, they're pretty good so if you're walking on rough ground rough rocks or whatever um, then they're they're pretty good to provide some sort of security
0: Mm. we've talked a bit about fire which of course is really important Uh, but light is important too i guess especially if it's in the northern hemisphere and it's towards winter, and the days are going to be very short, how would you make light so that you could, you know, extend your day? So obviously a big
1: fire is a classic one. But if you are in a sheltered area, like a, an overhanging rock shelter or, or a cave, then you can make a little fat lamp, and you can make them really, really small, um, just to be able to illuminate your bed, or you can make them much bigger. But basically whatever fat you've got. Um, So we used bear fat and buffalo fat when we were out in the wild. Uh, But when I make them with school groups, then we just use coconut oil or lard or even olive oil. Um, As long as you've got a wick. um, And again, you can make your wick from uh, natural materials like moss. uh, Mm. Or you can use a more modern thing like garden twine um, and clay pots, shells, um, making a hole in a stone. So fat lamps were brilliant. When we slept out in caves, then we just put them on the little rocky ledges in our in our cave. And it's amazing the light that it gave uh, to be able to do art, uh, you know, uh,
0: shadow puppetry. <laughs> were you tempted to make cave paintings and
1: art? Absolutely. It was one of my favourite days uh, when we did the Bulgarian experience. I just got so immersed in making these drawings. So we used ochres, which traditionally would have been used in the Stone Age. So it was really nice to be able to use paints that would have been used by our ancestors. And we used charcoal. And I don't consider myself particularly artistic. I love doing art. I, I feel like I can be quite creative, but I'm not particularly accurate with my drawings. But what I did find was that the lines in the rocks were already there for me to follow to create a shape of a deer or uh, a horse or whatever animal came out of the rocks. But they were already there, almost like there was a story already in that rocky wall. Um, And all I was doing was bringing it out. It was quite an emotional experience, really.
0: Yeah, that's uh, some of the coolest graffiti ever, isn't it? (laughs) <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And
1: I'm, um, you know, we we spent some time talking about why they would have done this and how they would have felt doing this, and we, you know, discussed whether we would want to do it when we left a place or when we arrived at a place, and whether or not it was a signature, and could you tell if somebody was more sort of left-handed or right-handed. So there was so much hidden information, I think, that can be gained from the cave art. Definitely. how fascinating!
0: Yeah, tell us uh, a little bit about how schools uh, can get involved with what you do.
1: Yes, so we have a website which is Outback to Basics with a number two in the middle of it. And we basically, we go into schools dressed in all of our buckskins and we take in all of the things that we made for both experiences plus more. So we even have a mammoth tooth that we can pass around, which is amazing. And we share our stories of when we lived out in the wild um, and combine that with the facts and the science and the history of our Stone Age ancestors. So we have all of the furs, we have uh, coyote furs and deer furs, and we have bone tools and stone tools. And the children don't just get to see them, they get to pass them around and touch them. And it really experience them with all of their senses rather than, you know, behind a, a glass cabinet or something like that. Mm-hmm. And then we normally do After we've done an interactive timeline where we dress up the children as well, Um, we then do uh, activities such as fat lap making or um, bread making. Uh, Schools can also come and visit us in our woodlands in Shropshire. And in which case then we can do shelter building and things like that. And we do cave art and we do uh, stone tool making and just show them some of the processes that can be done um, to keep it really, really simple. But also processes that our Stone Age ancestors would have used.
0: Now what strikes me, just a a parting thought, is that you have now got a job that makes you smile because you have smiled (laughs) consistently through talking about these experiences.
1: Uh, Yeah, I am very uh, blessed to have a job which does indeed make me smile and I do it because I I'm I am really genuinely very passionate about teaching people about where we've come from and about how to be alongside nature uh, rather than just kind of use it and then throw it away. Um, and so I get to dress up mm-hmm. all day in my buckskins. You know, I, I was, I was wondering when I finished both um, experiences or, or at least the first one, you know, will I wear my normal clothes again? Will I ever wear my normal clothes again? And of course, you know, I needed to go and get a job and um, to do so you probably need to wear normal clothes to go for the interview and things like that Um, and I was quite sad to put away my buckskins and I thought well when will I ever get them out again and now I wear them on a daily uh, occurrence and um, I love it when people say, oh, I love your costume. And I say, it's not a costume. <laughs> These are just my part-time clothes, you know, they are. Mm. And they are clothes that I take really good care of because mm. I made them from absolute scratch.
0: Well, you've taken us into the deep past, but part of me thinks that this is all so forward-looking. Not that we will go back to living exactly in that way but that we've got a huge amount to learn from this way of life.
1: Yeah, we can definitely have more simple lives and more basic lives. I often feel a little bit embarrassed when the teachers and the children say, so, so do you live outside? And I say, well, no, I, I live in a house. But I have had so many experiences where I've learned that if you take all of this away from me, I don't need much to be able to. And it's not about surviving, actually. It is about thriving. So when we did the Bulgarian experience, I crafted, you know, and I I didn't have any equipment with me. I would just go out into the field and pick grass and twist it and make a basket. Um, You can make the tools that you need very easily. And I think more and more people should um, get back to this and not because uh, they're scared that the civilization is going to fail, the world's going to end or whatever it is but because um, it's incredibly therapeutic to work alongside nature. So I do think that this needs to become a little bit more normal to live a little bit more of a basic and simple life, or at least know how to. That's the key.
0: Maybe it's been such a delight talking to you today. I feel there are so many more skills that I could pick up from you. But the good thing is I have a copy of your book. So I hope that um, lots of our listeners will uh, pop into their bookshops and. Uh, or libraries and order up a copy because there's a huge amount uh, to be learned, not only about the Stone Age, but also some skills uh, that you can try out for yourself. So thank you so much.
1: Absolutely. And if people do happen to want a signed copy, then they can just contact me directly through the website and I'd be happy to send one out to them. And we have two other books as well. um, So people can look those up um, and I can send them all three with a signed message inside.
0: That's lovely. Thank you so much for talking to me.
1: Thank you very much. In the Reading Corner is presented by Nicky Gamble and produced by Alison Hughes. If you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review. If you would like to find out about other events and courses, visit justimagine.co.uk. Join us again in the Reading Corner on your favourite podcast platform.